Welcome to Software Security Chat Chat, episode 143 for the 16th of April, 2014. I'm Chester Wisniewski here with my colleague, Paul Ducklin. Hello, Chester. I have a sneaking feeling that your first topic is going to be very much the same as it was last week. Am I right? Yes, uh, it's all about the Heartbleed. That's, that's been the majority of the press, certainly, for the last seven days. But it, it has gained some importance, I think, for a lot of people uh, that weren't really sure when, when news was originally breaking if, if it was as bad as it sounds. Um, there certainly seems to be no doubt about the fact that data certainly can be acquired through surreptitious means. And the first organization really to come forward is the Canada Revenue Agency, which is our taxation agency in the Canadian government here, they had a press release yesterday uh, announcing that uh, somewhere around 900 Canadians had their social insurance numbers uh, potentially acquired by people exploiting this heartbleed flaw. Fortunately for me, I filed my taxes about a week before it was known, and so uh, I don't believe that my personal details were necessarily included in the leak. Well, I guess the problem there is known to you, Chester. What we still seem to be arguing about is who knew about this how long ago and what did they do with it in the two years that this bug was in the code? Well, yeah, and, and I guess there there was this early disclosure to some organizations uh, by the OpenSSL folks, but it's really unclear who was on this list to be notified. We know that Cloudflare was involved. We know Akamai was notified ahead of time. In fact, Cloudflare seems to have publicly stated that they knew about the flaw the the Thursday before uh, the world learned on the Monday. So they had an extra four days to patch themselves. Um, Why, you know, in this case, apparently the Canadian government wasn't notified. I mean, it, it seems kind of weird that there's sort of this secret cabal that if you're deemed important enough by random people, you get told about things before others. It's very odd. I suppose with the benefits of 6-6 hindsight, we now know that once this thing became public, a certain Finnish company decided they wanted to make a big deal out of it. It did get a life of its own. They gave it the fancy logo, the amazing name Heartbleed, and told everybody about it. Things maybe did move a little faster in a bad way uh, than they would if it had just been Google disclosed it to OpenSSL and we took it from there as usual. So I'm in two minds myself about what I think about it turning into the Heartbleed vulnerability rather than the OpenSSL bug. It does seem that it's got an awful lot of rubberneckers actually going and seeing what they can find. And it looks in the case of of Canada Revenue as if they have found a small amount of data that they weren't supposed to have. Yeah, and and they they specifically have said that it was the six-hour window sort of between the public announcement of the vulnerability and them taking the service offline in order to do the patching and ensure it was properly secured. You know, it's hard to know when a vulnerability is made public what the reaction is going to be, but with the amount of attention this particular vulnerability got, I think it's fair to say more people are actively playing, exploiting, etc., than perhaps other flaws that uh, may have had equal gravity in the past. It it does look in this case as though that old adage about with many eyes all bugs are shallow turned out to be false. But it does seem to have proved that with many eyes all bugs are easily exploited. Yeah, and I would like to remind people um, that in most jurisdictions exploiting these vulnerabilities, even if you're just testing to see if a site is secure or vulnerable is a crime. So I know certainly under both U.S. and Canadian law, you cannot actively exploit a bug like this to to determine 
uh, if it's uh, exploitable at a remote site if you do not have permission from the owner of that site. So be cautious. Don't be out there probing your bank. Yes, it's a sort of be careful of what you wish for, isn't it? You, you download some proof of concept code, you start firing it off at a website that you may have a genuine interest in knowing whether it's vulnerable or not. And then you end up getting back a whole load of data that you suddenly realize, oh gosh, I'm not supposed to have that. Uh, that can put you in an invidious position. You know, I, I, one thing I want to praise the Canada Revenue Agency on uh, was their public press release that they released to the Canadian media yesterday. They specifically requested that the media always tell the public along with the story that the Canada Revenue Agency will not email people to tell them if they were victims or not. They were going to send registered postal mail to the victims. And they wanted the media to spread that word around that people should not be expecting or clicking anything that says it's coming from the CRA. And uh, we've seen some bad behavior on behalf of some websites out there saying, hey, we were vulnerable, but now we're fixed and you should change your password. Click here. I wrote an article along those lines for Naked Security urging people who might in the next week or so face the need to let their customers know that a password reset was a good idea not to do this. And I was amazed at how popular that article was. Um, you know, people coming out and saying, oh, gosh, I got one from this company. I got one from that company. How I do wish they wouldn't do this. So I'll just read out what I wrote on Naked Security because I thought carefully about these words. It's much more convenient if you do give easily clickable links and there is no technical or legal reason not to do so. But from a behavioral point of view, it's so much better if you don't put login links in emails because it means you aren't softening up your customers to click on the sort of links that scammers love. It's as simple as that, folks. Don't do it and then only the scammers do it. It's much easier for people to pick out those fishes. Well, that, that's an excellent segue because my bank uh, in particular, actually in, in the service we use for distributing the podcast, SoundCloud, both did this, which was a, a banner on their website instead. So rather than emailing me, when I went to the bank's website to do my normal online banking, they had a banner on the site that said, you may have heard about this Heartbleed vulnerability. We were never vulnerable because we don't use the affected software. For more information, click here. And then they had a nice page that explained what happened and why they weren't at risk, and the, uh, or the opposite, which is the, what SoundCloud did, right? They had a banner on their site saying they were vulnerable and that they had fixed the vulnerability and they recommended that you change your password. So uh, I think that's good practice. Yes, you're already on the site and they're actually letting you know that if you've been wondering whether you should change your password, now or later is the time to do it. We don't often have positive things to say uh, when it comes to, you know, catching criminals and things. Unfortunately, a lot of them go undetected perpetually. Um, these things do take time. And we had some good news in that nine people were charged uh, in, in the Zeus malware fraud ring in the United States. Uh, and, and that's really good news. Zeus is commonly used as a banking trojan. So it's usually used for financial fraud, stealing bank account information. It's also been uh, largely used as a, a platform for uh, paper install, as we call it, where you know, once you get infected with Zeus, they'll kind of rent you out as a victim to other criminals and install additional malware on your computer like CryptoLocker. Yes, I was going to say that. Uh, unfortunately, that's one of the paper installs that seem to have been used, um, which just sets you up for another $300 that you have to pay out. 
Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, in, in this case, uh, the only two guys are actually standing trial at the moment in, in Nebraska in the United States. Uh, they're both from the Ukraine. Uh, there's another four individuals that they know who they are, but they haven't been able to apprehend them yet. Three of them are Ukrainian and one is Russian. Um, and there's uh, three more unknown people that we don't even know who they are to, uh, to drag them to court. But at least two of them are physically in the U.S. and been extradited from the U.K. Yes, it's an interesting concept, isn't it? that you have this trial where nine people are charged. Three of them, you kind of know that there are these three murky figures in there, uh, but it does go to show that, unfortunately, it's not always possible to identify who these guys are, which is why on Naked Security, we've had, sadly, people who are responding to our Crypto Locker articles saying, oh, I got hit and I paid the money and, you know, why can't you just follow the money and get the guys? And, of course, it's quite difficult to follow fractional bitcoins as they traverse the internet. Um, but there was another bust as well, wasn't there? The Carter.su chap got done. Yeah, yeah, a guy in Georgia. This time it's the Georgia inside of the United States, which makes it a little easier to get them as opposed to the Georgia the country. But um, yeah, I mean, he's, he's accused of uh, being involved in a theft ring of up to $50 million using stolen credit cards. Uh, he went by the nickname Kilobit. Good job he wasn't a megabit, eh? Yeah, exactly. Good thing he's not, you know, as big as Kim.com, right? You're mixing kilobits and kilograms, are you? <laughs> well, I was, you know, I was thinking mega. Kim.com apparently weighs in at about 135 kegs, which is uh, quite big. Is that what you guys would call a linebacker? Yes, I think, I think mega is an appropriate name for all things related to Kim. But um, Kilobit, on the other hand, faces 35 years in prison for his... $50 million scam. Um, it's kind of interesting. I was looking at the breakdown of money in the Naked Security articles, like three, a little over $3 million from Amex, $2.2 million from Discover, but $15.5 million from MasterCard and $30 million from Visa. So I wonder if that's indicative of the popularity of those cards or whether it's just easier to commit crime against uh, Visa. And apparently he's going to have to pay that money back, which of course, given that He'll then probably also go to prison for a long time. He might find tricky to do. So uh, I don't know what's going to happen about the money. Well, if I were him, I would start some sort of uh, messaging startup with mobile phones and the internet and text messaging and stuff. That's the only way I can think of making, uh, making $50 million to pay back the, the restitution. It might be quite difficult for him to do that where he's probably going, Chester. In other legal news, uh, a story I wrote about it's over, I think, two years ago, and it's finally wound its way through the U.S. court system, which is uh, Wyndham Hotels. They, uh, about four years ago, were infected with malware and, and apparently um, were unable to clean it up. And uh, they, the Federal Trade Commission in the U.S. decided that was harmful to consumers and that they were going to find them for not looking out uh, for their customers' uh, data security and privacy, uh, knowing that these machines were compromised with malware to steal credit cards and personal information. And Wyndham actually decided to sue the U.S. government saying, you have no authority to regulate us. And it turns out on April 8th, a judge uh, in a U.S. court said, um, no, actually, they do have a right to regulate you. So um, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. But it's a very bizarre argument to kind of argue, we have a right to be infected if we want, and you can't tell us no. It does seem that, uh, to paraphrase Oscar Wilde, 
To lose one set of credit card data is a misfortune. To lose two sets of credit card data looks like carelessness. And apparently Wyndham managed to do it for a third time. So to go and say to the FTC, oh, well, you know, you didn't really tell us what we were supposed to do. How are we supposed to know? I think there are some things that if you're collecting data from your customers, kind of go without saying. And uh, not letting crooks steal it all is quite an important one, if you ask me. Yeah, and I, I, I wish my talk on credit card theft that I've been doing at a lot of conferences recently uh, was less popular because, uh, you know, the reality is this is happening to so many people at so many institutions and, and organizations around every country in the world that there's always a large crowd of people that are like, oh, I want to learn about this because my card was canceled three times last year in fraud situations. We, we are close to almost, uh, uh, I hate to use the word epidemic, but I mean, it seems like it. I, I don't know anyone who hasn't been touched by some sort of card fraud, whether it was their own cards or certainly their family and friends. Rich or poor, if the crooks are taking 10 bucks at a time from millions of people, that's a giant drain on the economy. Yeah, it certainly is. Um, yeah, well, I would like to invite our listeners um, on another note. Uh, I'll be out in the UK in a couple of weeks for InfoSec Europe, uh, one of the big uh, information security conferences in London. You're going to be doing the credit card swiping right there, aren't you? I am, actually. I'm even going to show uh, how the chip and chip and pin cards work uh, on the stand with the smart chip that's in them. Uh, the UK actually uses a system called uh, SDA, or Single Data Acquisition, and uh, it's, it's rather interesting to see the differences even as uh, how the chips have evolved, not to mention the stripes. So I'll be talking about all that stuff and uh, have a demo on hand for it. When I wrote about your forthcoming presentations at InfoSec on Naked Security, I said, Chester's a great presenter with a fascinating topic presented in a memorable way. Don't miss him on the Sophos booth if you're going to be at InfoSec, and that's in London at the end of April. But there's more, isn't there? Whether you're going to InfoSec or not, there's something you can do if you like Sophos Naked Security. Yeah, absolutely. We're up for uh, two awards at the European Security Bloggers Awards. So we'd appreciate your votes. And if you uh, go to Naked Security, you'll find a, a posting there that has a link that'll take you to the uh, the website where you choose the uh, different blogs that you like the most. And you don't have to vote for all of them, but we'd appreciate if you vote for us. And uh, we'd recommend if you're uh, involved in the security community that you pick all your favorites in all the categories that you can. Well, on that note, I'm gonna wrap up Sofa Security Chat Chat 143. As always, for the latest security news, you can visit nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And for all of our podcasts and the archive and technos and all the other things that we do, you can find that stuff at soundcloud.com slash Until next time, stay secure.